This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Stephen Bittner, host of History X Silo and special topics editor at the journal Kritika, Explorations in Russian and Eurasian History. The editors at Kritika have created the History X Silo so historians have a place to discuss their work, share their underlying assumptions, explore similarities and differences, and most important, step outside their expertise silos. So much of the work of the professional historian fosters narrow specialization. We become kings and queens of our own historical hills, and not much else. History X Silo seeks to remedy this. If you are interested in the mission of History X Silo, or if you think you have an idea for an X Silo conversation, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. You can find my contact info on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Today, we've brought together two historians who have written about kinship in medieval Europe. The geography, Europe, is essential here because one of our historians uses kinship to argue for the inclusion of Kievan Rus, that East Slavic state that was centered around the city of Kiev, in our understandings of medieval Europe. In light of the Russo-Ukrainian War, which hinges in part on contested understandings of a medieval past, and to be frank, Putin's false historical narratives, I have wanted to devote an episode to Kievan Rus. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me formally introduce today's historians and their works. Christian Raffensperger is the Kenneth E. Ray Chair in the Humanities, the director of the Aramarth Institute for Public Humanities and chair of the Department of History at Wittenberg University in Ohio. He is one of the most influential and prolific historians writing about the medieval East Slavic world. He is the author of Reimagining Europe, Kievan Rus in the Medieval World, 988 to 1146, which uses dynastic marriages, religious ties, and commerce to make a powerful case for the inclusion of Kievan Rus in the common orbit we call medieval Europe. It is not an exaggeration to say that reimagining Europe has changed the way I teach my courses on Russian and Ukrainian history, and even the words I use to describe the medieval East Slavic world. Since the publication of Reimagining Europe in 2012, Raffensperger has published a slew of monographs, edited volumes, and even a digital humanities project that build upon and flesh out the arguments he first advanced in Reimagining Europe. Raffensperger's conversation partner today is Joanna Drell, who is professor of history at the University of Richmond. I also have it on good word that Drell has just finished a term as the department chair. Joanna, congratulations on surviving that. When I asked Christian who would be a good conversation partner, he mentioned Drell because he admired her work on kinship in medieval Salerno, which, like Kievan Rus, exhibited Norse influences. That book is called Kinship and Conquest, Family Strategies in the Principality of Salerno during the Norman period, 1077 to 1194. In it, Drell uses family strategy as a window onto the evolution of political power in southern Italy. Kinship and Conquest won the Helen and Howard R. Moraro Prize from the American Historical Association, for the best book in Italian history. Drell has published a great many other works since Kinship and Conquest, so she also asked Christian to read a recent chapter she contributed to the anthology Mapping Pre-Modern Sicily, Maritime Violence, Cultural Exchange, and Imagination in the Mediterranean, 800 to 1700. This article reflects the evolution in Drell's thinking. 
The chapter is titled, The Luxuriant Southern Scene, Textiles as Reflections of Power in the Kingdom of Southern Italy and Sicily. As always, you can find links to these books on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. So now I will turn our conversation over to Christian. Great. Thank you so much for having me and for arranging this whole thing. This is wonderful. Um, So Kingship and Conquest was a book that I just loved. And rereading it for this conversation, um, I kept finding themes that I have worked on in subsequent books. And I was like, wow, I mean, she just led the way in all these sorts of things. So this has been brilliant. And I want to talk about kinship and conquest, of course, but I want to start with this article because this is newer, but also um, I myself am also getting into uh, material culture and attempting to try and use material culture as a more holistic way of looking at the past, uh, especially when we talk about kinship and we try and talk about women who are so often underrepresented in our textual sources, but we can get at them through uh, material culture in many ways. You begin that article, Joanna, with uh, Ibn Jubair, um, and and there is a great quote. And then you ask, what does it tell us about relations between Christians and Muslims, uh, the latter who were an underclass, um, you quote Metcalf on this, right, um, that Christians chose to appropriate Muslim garb, right? And I'm not sure I got an answer to that. And I would love to talk about that more. I think that is just a fascinating idea that you've got all these Christians wandering around looking like Muslims in a Sicily where Muslims are second-class citizens. Well, and on Christmas Day, no less. Um, So anyways, thank you. And um, yeah, I probably didn't answer the question. Isn't that what we do? I am. But um, and thank you again, Stephen, for putting this together. It's um, as I said before, this began in in reading um, uh, Christian's book. I was like, wow, these two books paired together. It's this would be a really good undergraduate seminar also, you know, for them to, to, to see these connections. It was fascinating. Um, so Ibn Jaber, that, uh, was one of the earliest, uh, quotes that I came across when I started my project, it seems like a thousand years ago. And, um, I mean, what, what does it mean? Um, Ibn Jaber is a notorious, what I did not know when the book came out 22 years ago, um, but what I've come to know because in the last 20 to 25 years, the field of medieval Southern Italy is, has transformed. Um, and I will never take all the credit for that at all. But the, um, the study of Ibn Jaber people like Alex Metcalf being able to do really sophisticated translations uh, from the Arabic um, have led scholars to, to, to suspect that he was, um, he was trying to be provocative in, in coming up with a, a description like that, um, that, uh, I mean, that was, he was a geographer, right? And um, just like a historian in that period. And he wanted, it, it, the whole context of that part of the book is he's utterly disgusted with Christians who are appropriating uh, Muslim culture. Um, and he's trying to, I'm not sure this is the, I don't know, he's, He's trying to sexualize things and make the women seem to be the ones who are at, um, who were in error, who were at fault. Um, there are other passages where that um, is clear. So, um, I mean, what he's trying to do to whatever readers will read this text when he gets back is essentially, if I can use such coarse language, is to piss them off, right? And say, you know, you've got women doing these things um, and appropriating it. It's interesting. I don't know the answer to the question of how, I mean, he knew what Christmas was. 
Um, but would, would his, um, would his audience, I don't know, but. Is the whole um, thing an exaggeration then? I think that's what I've certainly read. Um, the, the, I, I think, like I said, I think it's to provoke the audience to realize how terrible it is that Christians have infiltrated, um, as much as they have. Now, my feeling is if he really wanted to annoy people, he'd say something about the cathedrals uh, or, or something like that. But um, the but it's the the fact that it is women doing this is the the a big offense. There's another. Yeah, I mean, there's also a famous passage where he's talking about looking at a wedding and showing that the women, the, the Christian brides are seeming like Muslim and they're, they're sort of a combination of traditions that are going on. And, and the, you know, it's a sort of thing is whatever you do, don't look at that bride who is appropriating culture in a certain way. Right. Um, so that's, well, again, I'm quite that, sure I didn't answer your question, but. No, I think it's great. And it's paired in the article with this idea that there is, well, okay, so I'm going to put words in your mouth, that there's a conflict between Northern and Southern Europe. Um, you, you see the silks and the opulence of Sicily, or certainly the medieval Roman Empire, right, typically Byzantium. Um, Byzantine luxury is criticized by numerous Northern Europeans, especially Germans. Um, the Sic uh, Sicilian luxury is uh, condemned by the Angevins in the 12th and 13th century you talk about, right? I mean, what is behind this? Is this the same sort of thing where we've got Ibn, Ibn Jabir writing for Dar al-Islam that's saying, oh my God, those people are so luxuriant. And then we've got Ludprand of Carmona being like, oh my God, those people are so luxuriant. That's interesting. That's a good question. Um, so with Lutrand and um, what maybe Northern Europeans are saying is those uh, Christians are, um, again, I know this is, I, I'm, uh, they are, uh, their words, not mine, uh, are orientalized, right? It's quote unquote exotic, which is bad. And, you know, so um, that's the, so there's, that's the point there. There's something, I think it's different than what Ibn Jaber is doing. It's mainly that they don't know their place. And um, he talks about, in another piece that I wrote about travelers, he makes the point that Christians have set up, and I said this in the article, kind of like the equivalent, they're like lodging houses or Airbnbs, you know, for merchants and stuff. And that the, they're, they're really comfortable, you know, God forbid they're comfortable and they have beds. Um, and he goes on to, to say, you know, but you don't want to stay there because you're succumbing to the comforts. Um, and so I think it's, uh, Ibn Jaber is trying to keep things, would ideally like to keep things more separate. Um, whereas something like Lutprand of, of Cremona, whoever would, is trying to, to just say, you know, you know, things have gotten out of control in terms of the blending of culture. Yeah, they're too soft. And so that's, that's how I see the, how you can put them together, but I think they're going in different directions with the criticism. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Well, and then, uh, you know, reading Kinship uh, and Conquest again, you've got this quote from Benedetto Croce saying that the Normans had stifled the South and the region never recovered, right? So, I mean, you've got a North looking at the middle, you've got a kind of South or Southeast looking at the Mediterranean, and then you've got the South, the Mediterranean itself looking outward. Um, so, I, I mean, there are all of these really interesting elements, and I know that's you know, one of the reasons the Mediterranean is, is so hot uh, in medieval studies and has been, is because of these mixing of these worlds. Um, but it's fascinating. Well, and you also get the some of the more contemporary voices here. Um, I mean, with Italy, you know, the whole north-south problema del mezzogiorno issue. Um, 
I could not believe when I started the program, sorry, when I started my project, um, that that was still a thing. I'm the daughter of a Mississippi mother, and I'm now in the heart of the Confederacy where I work, um, although we have gotten rid of the statues and some of the more offensive University of Richmond names. And the, um, you know, my, my attitude when I was first came to understand the problema del mezzogiorno a hundred years ago was, oh, seriously? I mean, it was forbidden in my house to mock the South. Um, and so, I mean, one was, all, I was also raised to know the bad stuff and what is right, but stop making fun of Mississippi public education uh, and things like that, my mother would say. And, but the, um, so the fact that that is still a thing and it is still a thing in Italy, just, and it, it infects the scholarship of Italian scholars sometimes. So um, yeah, I mean, you've got a lot of different, I don't know, <laughs> Suddenly the word gaze comes into my head. I know it's the wrong context, but just all these different perspectives that you also have to deal with while you're trying to just read the manuscript and know if what Saints Day is causing the latest closure. So, um, yeah, it, it it's still a thing, I guess, is what I want to say. Well, so. and I think as Americans, I mean, I wrote a piece a couple years ago um, saying, uh, that I think I have an advantage as a medievalist being an American because I don't have to be embedded in some of these local conflicts um, because, you know, especially, and, and Stephen mentioned this in his introduction, I mean, the history of a thousand years ago, Kievan Rus is part and parcel of the conflict in Russo-Ukraine war today. Um, I mean, you, you see people talking about it. I mean, I remember in the first month of the war, there was a soldier, um, he uh, repossessed, in his words, uh, an apartment uh, in Kiev uh, or on the outskirts of Kiev uh, and said, you know, we're retaking Rus. Um, and it's like, you know, OK, you're not really. <laughs> but but this is the word, you know, Putin goes back to the, the primary chronicle and he brings this stuff out. And and so if you're a scholar in Europe um, dealing with these issues, especially in Eastern Europe, you've got a lot of baggage that you're working with. Um, and it sounds like what you're talking about with Italy is very similar in that. Uh, and so maybe that gives us a little bit of a leg up. I, th that's interesting because, so first of all, since I have to say everything, uh, Mississippi mother, Soviet Jew, Russian, Ukrainian origin father. Um, and so the, um, you know, on the one hand, yes, I think it was an advantage to come at it fresh and I want to know more about, you know, how, how you came to this and, and what the experiences were like for you with this project. But also there was a fair amount of what are you doing studying my culture? Right. Yeah. And so that was now that I don't know whether it's because I was also, you know, I was a woman. I don't know whether that has a complication. It had other issues that tend to come up with Italy, but um, fair or not. But that the idea of you're not even Italian. What, why are you looking at this field? Yeah. And so, um, but my naivete is a nicer word than ignorance, uh, for it was tabula rasa. Let's, sure. Let's be fancy. Uh, <laughs> could it could have been helpful to know about the dialect. Um, but the, <laughs> it, um, <laughs> thank you thesis advisor, but it's, I, I see it as having advantages and disadvantages. One of the bigger disadvantages is, you know, I'm having to invent the wheel constantly. I mean, you and I, with our, as I realize in reading your work, um, we, there wasn't a lot we could draw on to start this, these projects. And so that is when I, when I have reviewed my own book, the things that I shudder about when I'm reading it is, is some of the basic history because I had nowhere to find it. And, um, the, um, one of the most famous works for Southern Italy is written by Lord Julian Norwich, who chose not to include footnotes, um, for his otherwise very re readable works. And so it's, um, 
you know, it was it was the beginning. Now, I'm not the beginning. Graham Loud and David Abalafia in my field are the beginning for the Anglophone world. And Loud is my one of my advisors. But for whatever reason, their works were not as available. Um, so it's, it's, that was a, a huge challenge, just knowing what happens after the next thing. I mean, you raised in your, your work, especially as pertaining to women, the problem of sources, the problem of medieval sources, especially when they're written by monks. And that's one of the big reasons women were not necessarily, you know, there's a lot of speculation one has to engage in. Um, yeah, I just finished this summer uh, a book, a manuscript um, about, it's a collective biography of a queen of Rus. Um, and the title, the working title at least, is Name Unknown. Um, yeah. Because, <laughs> I mean, it's daughter of, wife of, mother of, <laughs> but right. we rarely ever get this this woman's actual name. So. Sure. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's you know, that's certainly something I came across too. And it's the the issue of, of having, in many ways, we had a lot of sources, but for both our projects, never enough that never as many as we want, but also just not the right kind. Yeah. Although you I'm je jealous of your charters. I mean, charters were, yes, they, I mean, that's one of the, the things we get in that period, but they are also biased and, complicated and there were a lot of forgeries um which was not again very good work has come out on medieval southern italian forgeries um since uh, you know over the last 20 years or so but it's um he as i i mean i pro, the the what i've done for the last four years of my life is be a department chair and teach freshmen first years um and and very little else and so the um the big thing with the with the first years is always okay. There are all these problems with our sources. So what do we do? We throw them out, or do we somehow you know throw the baby out with the bathwater, bath as it were? And so um, the it's reasoned speculation is is the the key. And I will say that's what I was so impressed with. Um, not to make this a big love fest, but that's what blew me away by how you wrote things here because you it was speculation on some part especially when it came to women and i thought you phrased it really well somebody else who does it extremely well is my colleague and also graham loud uh, student um, paul oldfield um who's um i think his work is magnificent in medieval southern italy so i'm just saying that's that is kind of a um i don't know whether it's a trick of the field to do it persuasively. Yeah. Um, well, and foregrounded enough that, you know, you are speculating, mm -hmm. um, but include the speculation so that the reader actually can draw the conclusions that need to be drawn. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. um, come back to that, but it's, um, so, so yeah, I, I, I mean, I like the, one of the things that I'm working on right now is perceptions from outsiders by outsiders of medieval Southern Italy and from different, you know, English, French, um, German. Um, and I really should do Byzantine, but at a certain point you have to contain <laughs> the, the project yeah. or you'll never get it done. So, yeah. And, and so I, okay. I 100% represent or, uh, uh, agree with that idea, but I would put in a plug for including someplace that was not Western Europe, um, to try and bridge those things. So England, France, hundred percent, but, you know, maybe also include Byzantium instead of the German empire or, or, or something, or, I mean, you know, Iberia is so hot right now, of course, as well. Um, you know, it, they've got such interesting history as well. Uh, so, but, but, you know, one of the, the, the problems that I see in our field is that, um, you know, Iberia worked really hard to get included in medieval Europe. Um, and then it was in the Mediterranean, all of a sudden got Included and everybody has to do Islam and um, and then it was global Middle Ages and you know I was on the board of the the Medieval Globe which was one of the first journals that did this um, but but what got left out was still Eastern Europe yeah, um, yeah and, absolutely. and even 
you know, I've written this before, but the AHA uh, has a statement on their journal website uh, for the AHR that says, historically, we've been all about North America and, and Western Europe, and now we're trying to make a concerted effort to publish on South America and Africa and Asia and Australia. And, and, and I'm like, right. oh, wait, okay, so um, you know what's missing there is Eastern Europe. <laughs> so we're well, interested in the entire world except for Eastern Europe. Yeah. And that's the case in, um, you know, thinking of my teaching in textbooks. They're, oh, my gosh. Yes. They are including a couple of chapters. I didn't have time and space to do that in the class. So we didn't read that. That is going to change uh, now. And so um, I can't keep half of France together anyways. And so um, but the it's I mean, one of the things I wanted to talk with you about in this today is it's about how global is global with with some of this and um the the advantages and disadvantages i guess in in terms of of doing work like that there is i mean in my field i mean where i started expanding was into crusades that was the direction i took my work, sort of Southern Italy and the Crusades, Italy and the Crusades. Um, I didn't do go up north. Um, and I, the extent to which I include Byzantium is really as it's connected to the Crusades. Um, and so, you know, at a certain point, there is a, a limit to how many sort of geographical areas you can, um, you could bring to your work, uh, and and so it's it, for Southern Italy. There is this experience with Roger II, where he is uh, conquering uh, Roger Borsa, uh, um, Africa. But it's really the tip. It's really just a very small part of North. Yeah, and so to a degree, that has gotten blown up more than perhaps the evidence merits. And that's, it's a, a similar um, phenomena that happened with women, the study of women um, to a degree. There was so, you know, there has been so much work on them, thank goodness. But comparatively, the amount of evidence is still, you know, less than we would have. So I often wonder if their position is getting a little overstated. Um, does that sound reasonable or? I, mean I think it's incredibly reasonable. And, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to make an argument for in my recent work is talking about rulers rather than continuing to gender things. Um, because, you know, uh, Teresa Ehrenfeit made the argument that um, by focusing so hard on queenship studies, we built up a great queenship studies field, but that meant that it never got integrated with kingship studies. Um, and so, in fact, what we've done is just completely, you know, marginalize ourselves in a different way. Um, and so uh, they, it needs to really kind of come back together into, into one thing. This um, is why I do family and I didn't do women. And that, I uh, shout out to David Hurley. And that was his advice. He was um, the one, he didn't really know Southern Italy when he took me on as um, his advisee. Um, but he said, I think you should work on family, not women. And that there was more to, to go with that, to do with that. And so, um, you know, I, these fields, this, this all can be successful in lots of different ways, but it's, it's mainly just trying to, with, with a field where one can, one has to be careful about what evidence you do and don't have. It's a standard thing of not wanting to overblow the, the precious evidence that you've got. Right. And I think, you know, coming back to what you um, hinted at about, you know, medieval world or medieval globe is this idea that uh, just like with women, the idea that we want to get at is inclusivity, right? We want a, a broader world. We want more inclusion. Um, and some of the ways that we as human beings go about that is is uh, result in overboard. 
um, results in the like too much of a laser focus. And so, you know, what I what I see in the medieval world stuff is people who work on England and France are more interested in drawing connections to sub-Saharan Africa or the Indian Ocean than they are to my roots in Eastern Europe. Um, and, and so I still think that there is something to be said for medieval Europe as a discursive category and, and that medieval Europe, I think, needs to include everything from Scandinavia to Sicily, from Portugal to Rus, inclusive of the medieval Roman Empire, Byzantium, um, so that we can talk about this as a discursive whole, uh, at least for the period I'm most interested in, in 10th, 11th, 12th centuries. Um, yeah. I think there's a lot, a lot to really um, recommend that as a as a, a unit. The um... No, I, I, I agree. What's inter- I was thinking back to what you said about Spain. Spain caught on. Sicily, very little. And Italy, my, my impression is for, the, for medieval Europe, Italy, well, okay, Rome, popes, that's really a big deal. But the, it, but the actual history, because it is so different from your general picture of England and France, is Italy was sort of pushed, understandably, towards the quote-unquote Renaissance, which is getting not used anymore, too which confuses art historians because students can't find the courses. Um, but the um, it's, I mean, these, the, it's a, these stages are all fascinating in terms of what is, uh, I don't know, style or chic for the study of history. But it seems that, um, I mean, my, my feeling for why Spain caught on as much as it did was obviously it was multicultural. I think people knew Spanish. And maybe they had more experience with Spanish. I think Southern Italy had a reputation, often earned, often not, uh, in terms of where one would go. I don't know if people thought they were going to run into the mafia or something. That's not what happens. Um, but it, it, did, um, it does in Russia. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Um, the um, But it's, you know, I don't know whether it was that scholars didn't want to go there or they didn't know how to how that would work. Um, Spain maybe seemed, I don't know, more accessible in some way. I have no idea. I don't know why scholars did not go to Southern Italy more when they could have. It's a multi people. One of the things you said a couple uh, moments ago was that, um, you know, Southern Italy doesn't fit the English and French model. Um, and, and you said in, in Kinship and Conquest, you have this mm-hmm. great quote, um, and I apologize, I'll just actually quote it. It, it. it may simply be the case that Southern Italy was an exception to many of the rules that scholars have imposed on family organization during the 11th and 12th centuries, mm-hmm. end quote. And, you know, when I read that, I was like, oh, aha, because you know who else says that? I say that. People you who work that. on Ireland say that. People who work on Scandinavia say that. We're, we all say, like, wow, we just must be oddballs. And then when you start to total up the oddballs, you realize, actually, you know what? The normative model we've created based on England and France turns out not to be normative at all. Um, and, and that's why I think we need to talk to each other. I mean, not just you and I, although I'm loving this, um, but that we need to get the Irish and the Scandinavians and the Eastern Europeans all talking because – you know, I think that's where normative medieval Europe is. And because we live in an Anglophone world, we have relied on this model with sources galore coming out of Anglo-Saxon England and Norman England and Angevin England. Um, and, you know, I've got this great uh, this great quote where Henry II is putting out thousands of documents every year of his reign. Um, and then you get to the Germans and they're putting out uh, – three, four hundred documents, you know, and then you get to the polls and it's four documents and then you get to Rus and it's three. Um, and so it, it's really, we do see document production and source space go down and thus we've privileged the high source English. Um, but they're not- And the they majority. were fighting each other. Oh, you but not if, if, not if you read the classic histories, they are the classic model of unifying history. They went from division to centralization, and anybody who didn't go towards centralization, like your Sicilians and my Russians, right, they don't fit that model. So they're There's not... The English good. and the French were fighting each other. Oh, yes, and, I apologize, okay. yes. And so, I mean, I, it, again, I don't know, this is where, you know, my contemporary historians, modern historians, to come in... <sighs> 
for, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of good reasons why those were the fields that were privileged with the creation of, you know, the big universities in the 19th century and, and so forth. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it just means that you're right. The normative model got sort of a head start with, with that. And, um, and the food was better. Maybe not your field. Um, and, uh, and some of the, uh, the other fields that, that followed, but I just keep thinking of, you know, I, I'm, I'm running the Haskins conference now here at UR and I'm listening to all of these English, these papers on medieval England and my husband's a medieval English historian. They're all saying, no, uh, Barry St. Edmunds wasn't like Kent, um, and isn't like, you know, Leeds and so forth. And so I think the, the more one studies. It's sort of like one of the things that I think my book started at and, and got into and other people have as well is primogeniture. No, that, that, that is this model. It's what students come into the class thinking, eldest son, blah, blah, blah. No, parents didn't hate all the rest of their children, or maybe some of them did, but it wasn't a rule. Right, and, it's not a rule, you know, and you make that clear in Kinship and Conquest, which I love, and and it's not. And when you look at the comparands around medieval Europe avoiding the northwest corner, um, it's not. Uh, Ireland, <laughs> and one of the things when I would go to medieval studies conferences when I was first starting out um, is people would hear me and talk, and then they'd say, you know, you should go talk to the people who do Ireland. They also have weird stuff. And <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Let's put those weird people together and and – so then we're, you know, in terms of that, there's no question in, you know, reading your work that I see the connections. Part of it is, you know, I had a, a, a compassion uh, <laughs> in turn and empathy that, you know, we we did these fields that we had to to figure a lot more out. And, you know, that makes us very special. Um, <laughs> and the um, I'm. A simple question is how, I mean, why did you do this field? Yeah. Well, like you, I mean, I'm not, um, I'm not Russian. I'm not Ukrainian. I don't have Slavic ancestry. So, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like trying to find their heritage. Um, I'm not married to a Slav, uh, which is another thing that often gets, uh, gets uh, scholars into this sort of thing. Um, you know, I came up as a little kid uh, playing with castles and knights. Um, absolutely loved that. Uh, the Soviet Union was starting to crumble as I was coming of age in high school, and we got a, a defector from St. Petersburg, uh, Leningrad at the time, who came to my high school and began teaching Russian. Um, she didn't have any certifications, so we had a gym teacher sitting in the back of the room because he had the proper teaching certificate, and uh, she had never taught Russian <laughs> to Americans before, and so I, uh, to this day, my grammar is terrible, um, but she just started us talking. And so, you know, I can talk my way around various things, even if my case endings are terrible. Um, but I had these two interests, um, and it wasn't until I was a in a class on Vikings uh, with Michael Jones at Bates College, and I learned about Vikings going into Eastern Europe, and it was an aha moment. Um, I loved that. I was like, oh, I can put my two interests together. So I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Rus. Uh, forgot all about it, went into business for a few years. And then when I did go to graduate school, uh, Richard Helley at the University of Chicago was kind enough to take me on. Um, Sheila Fitzpatrick did Soviet history and Walter Kage did uh, Byzantine history. And they rounded out my worldview there. Um, and so that's how I really got started in this was trying to put together some interests. Interesting, because it's really, you know, as like I said, I noticed this from textbooks. The Slavic people, people aren't studying Hungary either, but there's a chapter in the, the latest uh, textbook by I think Barbara Rosenwein, right? And so, um, but those areas, as long as you're not going to get hurt um, going to do your work, which I worry about people working on Rus, um, the, um, those, those directions of medieval history seem to be very... Um, open for absolutely for... yeah i agree well and i uh 
so several things. I mean, Barbara Rosenwein's textbook is great in so many ways and inclusive in so many ways. But even the treatment of Roos, which is better than any other single textbook, is still based on what I would consider to be outdated models. Um, it still includes the Byzantine Commonwealth model. Um, I mean, when, it, when Roos is mentioned in textbooks, it is mentioned for Vikings going east, a conversion to Byzantine Christianity, and the Mongols. Right, you at least have two of those three, if not all three. There's no substantive discussion of any of those things. Um, and Eastern Europe in general often gets short shrift, and it's included typically as a way to prove a point. Um, I, I mean, I, I did a review of textbooks because I'm writing one uh, now with Florin Curta at the University of Florida. Um, and in the textbooks I reviewed, it, you see very often. The Balkans in the you know 10th century, 8th century, 9th century, you know, split between East and West, and you can see in the wars of the 90s those same divisions. <laughs> but you know, we don't see you know uh, Louis the Pious's sons divided the realms into the Franks and the Germans, and we still see those divisions in World War One fighting over Alsace-Lorraine. Um, they don't use history to make points for Western Europe; they only use history to make modern points for Eastern Europe. Um, so we've got some of those issues going on there as well. But yes, it, it is an open world. And one of the things that's so wonderful about the history that I do in the Slavic part is I don't actually need to go too often to uh, Russia is actually where the majority of the physical sources are, the textual sources, because during the imperial period, they grabbed everything they could and they took it to Moscow. So there's an archive of ancient acts, it's called Ergada. Um, and so most things have been published and published and published and published. Um, and the few people who, um, who who came before me in America who worked on medieval things, Janet Martin, uh, Daniel Kaiser um, is, is just two, they started in Rus and then went later. They went to the early modern period uh, because there were more sources. Um, and I always swore I'd never do that. And so what it meant was I went not later in time, but I went west. And so my work has been trying to build Rus into that larger medieval world. And so, I mean, for instance, I have a book coming out uh, this month that's um, what I'm calling uh, the Ark of Medieval Europe, uh, Rulers and Rulership in the Ark of Medieval Europe. So it talks about Iberia north through Ireland, Scandinavia, down through Rus and Eastern Europe to the medieval Eastern Roman Empire. Um, so it's trying to, to, to build a larger world to talk about a different normative frame like we were talking about earlier, uh, than that created by England and France. But there's a lot of opportunity to work in that medieval Eastern European world. Uh, we just need people to, to do that work. And, and there are a lot of institutional problems with that because of the silos that we have created as academics. We've got medievalists who work on Western Europe. We've got Slavists who work on you know, Eastern Europe. And we've got Byzantinists who work on the Byzantine world. Um, well, and, and it's interesting because I would say a point of intersection of our viewers and my work, in addition to, I mean, obviously, uh, family, women, um, uh, those issues is it's this, it, it's, it's much more with your, there's something about the role of Byzantium. And I mean, that's obviously, you know, huge with yours, but obvious, you know, for medieval Southern Italy, the the influence the uh, the inf of of the Byzantine world is significant for the whole history of the Normans in the South, um, and it's I, I wonder if in English what kinds of work is available. Um, on medieval, um, I don't know, the, the role of medieval Byzantium in, for the rest of Europe, you know, from that perspective, from the Byzantine looking or a contemporary, a, sorry to say, a modern scholarship that's, um, I don't know if American and or even British scholars are doing it. Um, and I don't know if scholars in, I don't know, Greece are, are bringing that, if that work is reaching us. Do you know? I do. Uh, I mean, I, I move in those worlds. And the biggest, um, uh, well, okay, there are a lot of answers to this question. <laughs> uh, 
scholars in Greece aren't doing it for sure. Um, I mean, two of the best Byzantinists in the United States are Anthony Caldellis, who's at the University of Chicago now, and Leonora Neville, who's at Wisconsin. Um, and they're both writing really innovative and fascinating works. I mean, uh, Anthony's works are reshaping the way we think about it, not as Byzantium, but as what they thought of it as, which was the Roman Empire. Well, yes. Um, I so his, so his yeah. Roman land, his Byzantine Republic, right, are, are books that are really reshaping that. Um, Leonora has, has absolutely followed that and is, is not using Byzantium anymore for those reasons. Uh, but um, they, and, and Anthony and I have talked about this in person, um, they are not specifically looking at what's going on with the rest of the medieval world. Right. Um, and they're focused on this medieval Roman world in particular. And I, I know one of the things that, that that Anthony has brought up is that, you know, he's tried to reach out. He's tried to build these bridges and, and there hasn't been historical interest. And so he's going to focus on, you know, this this particular world. Um, and I think that that's uh, that's legitimate. I'm not ready to stop beating my head against that wall because I think it will work eventually. And. You know, I think there are some great examples of of the ways that we institutionally divide medieval Europe, and and one of those is the fantastic Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library. Um, do you use these volumes? I have. I have do not. I have not had reason to use them. I've certainly gotten some of the articles yeah. online, but I mean, they've got these wonderful facing page translations, yeah. um, and they do Greek uh, texts, they do Latin texts, and they do. Uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon texts uh, or cool. Old English. I forget which is the preferred term these days. Um, and they do old not... Old English. I apologize. Thank you. Um, it's ignorance. It's nothing else. I apologize. <laughs> um, and then the uh, they don't do Slavic. Um, and so you've got this series that is in many ways the gold standard of translations for the medieval world. And it includes Greek texts, Latin texts, and Old English texts, right? So that's what makes up that world. It doesn't include Slavic. It doesn't include Scandinavian texts. Um, and so there are these institutional barriers to what you were talking about, about how do we get more people interested in these areas, right? They need to actually read the languages. And and that's one of the things I, I tell a story often about uh, Chris Wickham's wonderful framing the early Middle Ages. And he is, uh, you know, just fantastic. Um, but he says in his introduction, you know, I apologize, but I'm not going to do the Slavic world. I just don't have the languages. Okay, fair. Two pages later, he says, um, you know, I don't have the languages to do the Islamic world, but it's too important. And so I'm going to use translations into English. And I was like, oh, come on, man. You could have done it. You could have used the Slavic translations. There are some. Um and that's the, the the institutional barrier, but also the mindset barrier that we have for what is deserving of inclusion and what is not deserving of inclusion. Well, and with the, the whole push on the Crusades, that that's where you get all the translations. That's where, you know, there's been a huge, you know, an explosion of translations um, and the which is the, the key to teaching it, which is gets the students interested, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The, well, and um, it's impressive that you're working on that field or have gotten into that field too, because the the word I have is that that's often a very kind of um, kitschy, not kitschy, a uh, clicky field of crusade studies, um, and it's often um, about battles and such rather more than gender. No, it just means I didn't know and I went into it anyways. Sort of, of it. all of this, I kind of pay very little attention to that. Um, a lot of things come out of what I'm teaching. I was forced by a previous chair to uh, actually Hugh West, Stephen, uh, to teach a Crusades course when I had never studied the Crusades or ignored them. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, just went in that direction. But the role of Southern Italy in everything, I'm always looking at the Southern Italian angle or the Italian angle. And that was something that was very little, you know, yeah, there was a great into. book about five years ago, maybe that was semi-popular on that topic. Um, there, there've been a number now, and there are collections, yeah, you know, lots of articles, um, edited collections, and so forth. The, um, I mean, what I think, it, in terms of the work, 
I mean, listening to you talk about how the, you know, Slavic world is so underrepresented and, and, and I don't think it's taught much. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, ironic that, of course, it's in the textbooks. Lots of things are now in medieval textbooks. Yeah. They are inclusive as heck. <laughs> uh, and then I still would love to know what the main ways people are teaching the courses are. Yeah. And so are they really using all of that material? I, I don't know, but the, um, I'm, it will be interesting to see the direction of these field uh, of our field going forward, because I would think, uh, students would be all over the kind of work of Roos. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they should, it's my argument for any university where they're so, you know, oh, their students aren't studying history or they're not majoring in history. And I, I just keep wanting to shake them and say, have you looked at the news for the last 10 years? Right. But, um, whatever. And so the, you know, we, some of us had our moment with COVID. Ooh, let's talk plague. Uh, <laughs> you know, the Italianists, worse their sense had, had, had a moment, but the, um, yeah, no, my CV okay. is filled with talks on the Ukraine war, so I know what you mean. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, it's 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 fascinating and terrifying, and and I'm just, you know, we, we've been talking about this with the Haskins conference, is having work, you know, doing some, having people present on not just the Wikipedia version of the connections, but the 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 modern origins or the you know the, what is going on right now that is you know has a, the past or you know has the origins in the the medieval um time because you know you can't really do that with the crusades people cheat and they try to make a connection right to explain 1095 explains 911 no it doesn't go read a book. Um, but there's a much more direct, if I'm not mistaken, historical connection that you can draw between, you know, the, the medieval past being um, uh, related to the modern situation. Am I correct on that? In, in Rus, you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, largely because Putin has made it a connection. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, he wrote uh, two years ago now uh, on the historical unity, an article called the, On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians, where he laid out the history in his view of the two peoples that were really one people um, ever since uh, my period, ever since Rus. And he is relying on um, the idea that he can. It's not even an idea. The fact that he can mold the way that students in Russia learn history to teach a narrative that I would say, and I I think Stephen would agree with me, is a false narrative of the history of what's happening at that time and in those places to say that the Ukrainians are nothing more than, as they were called in the imperial period, little Russians. Um, And they were little Russians who didn't know any better. And and you've got all kinds of quotes in the the 19th century to talk about this sort of thing. Um, But he's made it an issue. And so it's that reclaiming of the historical unity of the past. And um, I, I don't want to minimize the fears of the Baltic peoples or, or other Eastern Europeans in any way, but but my read of this situation is for Putin, this is about the East Slavic peoples. It's not about rebuilding the entire Soviet empire. Um, Belarus is already completely under his thumb. Uh, you know, he wants Ukraine. Uh, but, but Seems like he needs to... Pat Geary needs to sit down and talk to him about origins <laughs> of peoples and, and to, you know, learn something. Um, <laughs> can I, can I bring up something, a quote from, from, I, I realize, I mean, I have a million things unli- underlined here. This is actually from the earlier part. And I thought this, you know, going back to, to marriage. And I thought this was, I really liked this about this sort of, circle back to this idea of maybe when we don't have all the evidence that we would specifically like, you know, a monk saying, and then she told her husband's, uh, uh, you know, audience that they should do this. Um, you say on uh, whatever it is, this is page 52, the, the quote, the, it's about endogamy, Saxo Grammaticus, the 12th century chronicler of Danish history. Uh, the Danish royal house ought to marry their neighbors because they, they shared a culture and cultural discontinuity in a marriage is too jarring. Mm. 
Yeah. Okay, that's probably because um, I celebrated my 30th wedding anniversary and I'm married to a Kentuckian. Um, <laughs> so talk about cultural discontinuity. Um, and that's just, it's, it's, it's a good example of just logic, right? I mean, it's, I don't know that there is a specific example to support that. I don't think there is from Southern Italy, but it just makes sense. Now, does our field accept that kind of basis? Oh my gosh, I got I have to think that that. I mean, because I'm not sure I do from a student, but I like it and I agree with it. Right, the little. The, the little Democrat in my head is rejecting all of this. No, no. You know, you can't just marry people like you. This is terrible. I've got the yard sign in front that has three languages. It's okay. Um, no, I, I, I think Saxo's right. Uh, but mm-hmm. also, I mean, that that's not always the way things were. But if Saxo is right, um, that it might make for less conflict well then what does it mean that uh yeah. you know knut lavard who is sainted marries a, a russian um and that you know their son valdemar uh becomes one of the, the most prominent rulers of all of denmark and he marries a russian woman too i mean mm-hmm. then that means that there's cultural continuity there um i mean could we be talking about Otto the second's marriage to theophano is that cultural discontinuity Discount, yeah. um, i mean what about when the Angevin princesses marry Henry II and Eleanor's daughters all over medieval Europe? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that there is an elite culture that is different than a silo of Danish or, you know, I mean, certainly the Dansk Tunga, this area of Danish tongue um, in Scandinavia would be a culturally similar area. But would that be inclusive of England by the time of Saxo? No, certainly not because of the Normans. Is no, there a similarity between your Normans and the Sicilians in the 12th century? Depend. Well, once they marry them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, um, well, right. Uh, you've got great examples of the Lombards and the Sicilians. Um, oh, yeah. Is it um, Malaterra who talks about the Sicilians um, as – no, pardon me, the Lombards. As, who? Gosh, who was it? Somebody said that the uh, Lombards – uh, so-and-so, uh, this ruler privileged the Lombards over somebody else because his mom was a Lombard and he didn't oh, right, know right, right. that the Lombards were dirty, thieving something and because um, he had a Lombard mother and a, and a Norman father. Right. Yeah. And the um, and so he should he should hate those other people. But <laughs> he but I mean, it was strategy and it was practical. Yeah. But well, it, it maybe it worked out just way. fine. Yeah, sure. Um, and the um, if you believe Malaterra on anything, but the um, the he was you know trying to show how smart Roger the Second was you know in his the origins that um, that that um, made him such a great due to his origins he was such a great ruler. But the um, it occurred what you said was it was the elite culture. Mm-hmm. They're just different rules. Yeah. They're different, just as we know today, um, but the um, for for all the terrible reasons. But the the dynastic marriages were a different beast entirely, yeah. right? Well, right? And, and, and marry Bonnie, anybody consanguinity eh, um, yeah. didn't have to matter. Well, and Connie Bouchard, who we both you yeah. know love and respect her work. Uh, you know, she said the the marriage of Anna Yaroslavna to Henry of, of France, you know, is exotic. Um, yeah. And and this was in a, a long time ago in a work. Um, but, you know, there is an elite culture or there was an elite culture in the 11th century that allowed for marriages from Rus to France and from Scandinavia yeah. uh, to Byzantium and, and all over these places um, that we're nobles, we're elites, we're all in the same place. And that's much more likely than marrying down. Um, mm-hmm. into your your even lower elites no that's only in fairy tales right <laughs> and so the um but i think in talking about medieval marriages because the peasants generally don't leave records mm-hmm. um the um you know the it is this it's the it's the upper classes that um, we we sort of get the picture it becomes the the normative, um, absolutely as it is. Well, and, but it, and as moderns we, who live in nation states, um, you know, we tend to think in that way. So we've got mm-hmm. Rus and we've got France and we've got England, and France and England are still in existence today, 
and mm-hmm. thus get privileged in a different way than Roos does, or Salerno, or Sicily, because of the Mezzogiorno yeah. situation, as you noted earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And we tend to think of those silos of nation states, which really didn't exist. Um, and you and I are talking about this elite horizontal connection, as opposed to a vertical connection within one polity that might not have been thought of the way that we think of them. In fact, I would suggest it wasn't thought of that. Yeah. Way. But how can we, again, that's something we have to, we have to propose that. Right. Um, the, um, you know, as far as the problemental mezzogiorno goes, a group that I've gotten somewhat involved in is um, talking about how really among the first um, northern Urs who settled in South, South Italy and actually married with the Normans were the Aleramici from um, basically Liguria, mm. so from Northwest Italy. And so it was basically the argument is it's Northern Italians. Uh, it was Northern Italians who were um, the ones who settled and intermarried um, with the the French queen and um, the Norman queen. And, and just, you know, for all of this, oh, North South Italy is not, you know, you're not supposed to like, Northerners are not supposed to like Southern Italy and what are this nonsense. Um, it was Northern Italians who were arguably among the first to settle there and create the Norman kingdom. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, the more you study, the more you just break up some of these, I don't know, uh, general, these uh, ideas that um, are not necessarily true Um, and i think that's another testament to the the similarities in our fields i mean you know one of the the narratives of part of the russian master narrative of history is that the people from the dnipper region moved to the northeast to the moscow region and that's why rus became russia right this was area was depopulated in the southwest and everybody moved to the northeast right uh, but okay. in fact, you know, that's not what happened. <laughs> uh, it, was a, it was a population spread and there were some people here and there were some people there and there were some people in the other place. But, but I mean, I love hearing all these similarities because I think the more that we can talk to each other, not just the two of us, of course, but people working on different regions of Europe rather than just, you know, two different parts of England or France. You were talking earlier about, you know, um, the, the Abbey in Leeds versus the Abbey in you know, wherever, I mean, York and Westminster, et cetera. Um, I think we can learn so much. Um, and that's something that I think is, is prominent, not just for American medievalists, but in general. So the real silos, yes, we all have silos, although you and I speak 11th and 12th century medieval history. Um, the real silos, of course, are the medievalist, and I'm speaking completely for myself, who doesn't talk to their modern colleagues um beyond you know basic stuff um because you know who don't have strong grounding in other fields now my excuse is i'm responsible for like 1300 years leave me alone (laughs) Um, but the um you know the kinds of you know you don't want to have big you don't want the narrative of medieval history to be oversimplified by the outside world, which yep. we know perfectly well has happened in the last couple of decades to in a really big problem. Um, and um, it's, I, I don't know in a practical sense at universities and colleges, how there can be greater understanding when we are all overburdened and teach too much and don't make enough money and our yeah. fields are dying, et cetera. Right. Um, that last the, one especially is a big one. I mean, you know, fighting cute. for these fields and fighting for pre-modern fields against modern fields and uh, fighting for pre-modern fields on their own account rather than to make different kind of arguments. Like this was a big AHA thing in the last year. of, uh, You know, the president of the AHA made a remark about how pre-modern has gotten used for serving modern purposes. And then he had to mea culpa and there was a panel about it. And, wrong. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. I wrote him a note to that effect too. And the, um, it's, yeah, I mean, and I mean, 
classicists are in arguably a worse case. Worse yeah. ca- I mean, even, and, you know, Renaissance history is probably going to be more officially renamed early modern mm-hmm. um, for any number of reasons that are, I get, but I'm sorry about. And so um, maybe we just have to pick our battles, but I wish on one, I wish in, I could feel more comfortable I wish I knew um, how to speak better with about modern history, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's not just that I'm, you know, oh, I've already, you know, I have too much I have to deal with. But it seems like there's a lot of facility of other people to talk about the past much more than I'm comfortable talking about the future. Or sorry. I, I mean, I think the big takeaway from from this but maybe all of it if not it's if it's not too much of an oversimplification is that we need to work on building bridges um building bridges across europe but also building bridges across time to our modernist colleagues so you said it much better than i did yes so uh, on that note uh on behalf of everyone at critica i want to thank christian raffensperger and joanna drell for their conversation today You can find links to the books they have discussed on the History X Silo page at New Books Network. Uh, And please keep an eye on the History X Silo page for our next History X Silo conversation. Thank you to both of you.